Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at DFWworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here and to be back in Dallas. I had the uh, the privilege of uh, coming many times when I was our energy correspondent for The Economist, um, but uh, I'm a great fan of uh, your organization, and so it's it's a treat, and I, I thank all of you for coming in, in such full force uh, to talk about innovation. And I want to give you a, a bit of a teaser of the themes in my book, uh, and along the way, I promise to give you three new rules of innovation. I'll tell them to you what they are now. You should move nimbly, open wisely, fail gracefully. <laughs> and I debunk a lot of myths about innovation in my book as well, because I think it's an area that's uh, full of dangerous fallacies and myths. Um, and I'll uh, hopefully, in my time uh, together with you, uh, persuade you that losing can be winning, that greed can be glorious and that disruptive dads beat tiger moms. So we'll see how that goes. Yes. Um, but first, let me set the frame. Let me tell you uh, the, the thesis of the book. Um, you know, I think uh, we are entering quite dangerous times for the global economy. Uh, this is an age of wicked problems. Uh, on the global stage, um, and some of the problems are quite unprecedented in human history and more challenging than we have come to acknowledge. The great problems that we've been working on as a society, the first decade of the 21st century, um, the war on terror post 9-11, and of course the, the financial crisis, rumbling since the Enron days and more aggressively since the Lehman collapse, these are difficult problems. You know, we have to work on these. But these are not the most difficult global problems we face. Uh, they just seem that way. But if you look at things from the perspective of 2100 or a grandchildren's perspective, we're not going to be judged on how we handle these problems. Uh, they're going to ask us, how did you handle uh, the problems that arose because of the, the megatrends of the 21st century, the outlines of which we can already see? We know that mankind is an urban species for the first time in human history. We passed that mark about two years ago. Uh, in fact, China passed that mark just two months ago. More than half of China now lives in cities. And we know the trend line. Within 20 years, the figure could be 70% of humanity lives in cities. And this poses opportunities. We can live together, if we do it right, more efficiently, more while sparing resources, because when you have density, it becomes easier to design energy efficiency. But equally, we might do it in a blithe way that leads to exurbs and you know, poor resource consumption as well and, and leads to tragedies and slums and, and megacities that are out of control and crime. And so there's a real challenge embedded in how we do urbanization. If we look at demography, the world is getting older. We have a population, and we're getting older before enough of us are rich enough. That is, societies like China are joining Japan Italy and becoming old societies, but China got old before it got rich. How is it going to pay for all of the things to come, including the burden of chronic diseases, which is a tremendous, looming financial disaster? Alzheimer's alone could be a trillion-dollar problem, which we have yet to come to grips with. 
And so uh, there are, um, and like this, I guess, the biggest one of all, the biggest megatrend, um, you'll know this because you are globally minded people, that's why you're part of the council, but you know, uh, the rise of China, India, Brazil, the emerging giants of the world, this is a transformation that's a once in 500 year phenomenon, uh, if that. We have not seen something this powerful since really the arrival of Europeans on these American shores unleashed a wave of globalization and interconnectedness. And what we saw was very powerful. And I, I argue that what we see now, in what we've already seen, the first wave of globalization and Googleization, has brought enormous prosperity. It has uh, created new markets. It's opened opportunities. We've seen a billion people lifted out of poverty in one generation, something that's never happened in human history, largely in China and India. And, and, and I predict that in the next generation, we may see another billion people rise out of poverty thanks to this wave of innovation that's happening. But remember, that I talked about wicked problems. The interconnectedness leads to, for example, a new age of pandemics. You know, we are much more vulnerable today than we were in 1970 to a new pandemics emerging, be that from Central Africa or in uh, southern China, and be, being able to connect on an airplane and arrive in Dallas. I was just in Toronto a couple of days ago, and they saw the first wave of that with the SARS tragedy that shut down the Canadian economy a few years ago. That was a warning cry. But we were not prepared when H1N1 arrived last year. We learned the wrong lessons, and we just dodged a bullet on that one, uh, to be honest. And I was our healthcare correspondent for a number of years, and I covered that outbreak. It was painful to see how ill-prepared we are for the next pandemic. Similarly, climate change and the resource crunch, that is, these are problems that are exacerbated by the rise of emerging economies and our own growth here in the developed world as well. And so these are the kinds of things that we need to really wrap our minds around in the 21st century. These are the more difficult, wicked problems. And at home, we look at uh, the middle-class squeeze. Now, there are some reasons to do with Washington politics. We can all point fingers on that. But when I look at the story, I see a middle-class squeeze happening not only in America, but across developed economies, Europe and Japan as well. And what I see is there's a broader megatrend or force at work. The prosperity that has been made possible by this innovation revolution of the last few decades is not being shared widely. It's not being shared widely enough. And it's, it's too facile to say the 1% are taking all the money, right? Um, it's true. The elites have made off better than the non-elites. In fact, the elites of Mumbai are a lot better off than even the elites, the elites of Manhattan in some ways, right? Life is pretty good uh, if you're, uh, thanks to the, the recent waves of prosperity. Uh, but the bottom billion are better off too. If, if you were in, among the very poorest on earth, the last 10, 20 years have been transformative because of the arrival of mobile telephony, which is now nearly ubiquitous in the world, with the arrival of micro-franchise and social enterprise business models, uh, uh, mobile banking. If you're in Kenya, M-Pesa will send money using a mobile phone, something I can't do in New York with my you know, money center bank that is subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer and is too big to fail, right? And so I say, what an extraordinary time to be alive. The innovation revolution is affecting the lives of the bottom billion, helping people at the bottom connect with the means to help their own lives, to create new business models, uh, and, to, and to be able to tap into the global innovation revolution as contributors, not merely passive recipients of charity, but actually contributing to the global economy, whether it's ideas, business models. There are companies like Ushahidi, which is kind of a crowdsourced approach out of Kenya uh, that's used in disaster relief. There are uh, companies like Samasource that connect 
Western markets with people, poor people even, in developing countries that can contribute their ideas and working on outsourcing using mobile phones. So this is a great time, actually, to lift yourself out of the bottom billion. But I ask, what about Kansas? What about the American middle class? Um, there's a real problem because many people who worked hard their whole lives, um, whether they be blue-collar workers or white-collar folks who have good educations, thought they did all the right things, are increasingly feeling left behind. Uh, they don't have access to the new tools of innovation. And if you see the subtitle of my book, there are also new rules of innovation. And they feel increasingly disconnected from the ways of participating in the innovation revolution. And this is really one of the things that motivated me to write this book, because I think it's not just about technology and gizmos and gadgets. That's one of the myths I want to debunk here. Innovation, fundamentally, is not about technology. It's not about IP and patents, even though a lot of times it's conflated with those ideas. In innovation is often connected with the idea of invention. Um, but oftentimes companies selling technologies want to tell you uh, that they're innovative because they have a new gadget or a new technology they want to sell you. Uh, a lot of well-intentioned governments or scientific societies measure innovation by measuring the number of PhDs, for example, that are produced or academic papers published. For me, these are inputs into the innovation process. They're not the outputs. The definition is really simple for me. Innovation is fresh thinking, which may or may not involve technology, that creates value. And the harder part of the innovation process is the value creation, not the technology. And that value can be created if you're a company, of course, for your customers, for your shareholders. But if you're a, a government agency thinking in a fresh way, it could be created for citizens. If you're a social business, there are many interesting models of philanthrocapitalism, uh, social enterprise, hybrid business models that are now emerging that I, I talk about in the book from the front lines, reporting on the people doing it. You could be creating value for your stakeholders. But the test we have to put to, you know, to my old friends from MIT who, who love technology, I say, hey, what's the value created? Don't tell me about the technology. Tell me why it matters. How are you creating value for society? And I put that same hard-nosed question to my friends in finance on Wall Street. I'm not interested in your creative derivatives and various other um, fancy products. What value are you creating? And one could argue that in the last few decades, Wall Street sucked in, along with the city of London, a lot of the brightest minds and a lot of energy, a lot of uh, capital, uh, but produced little enduring value. Uh, and poor regulation was one of the factors. But ultimately, we let Wall Street get away with claiming it was being very innovative without actually challenging in a, in a careful way what is the value created. So the greed part of my thesis really gets to incentives for socially important and useful innovation. I think we should reward innovators even more than we do. But we need to go from a model that harnesses greed you know, in the old Wall Street way, greed is good, to rewarding greed for good. And I'll talk about that a little bit more if people are interested. So I've given you reasons to be gloomy. You know, this is a terrible time we're living. Oh, my God. Oh, Don't even get me started on our educational system, which is increasingly disconnected from the skills we need for an ideas economy. But if you uh, actually read my book, you'll find that I'm optimistic. And here's why. And that's because there is actually an extraordinary innovation revolution that's getting underway. You know, this uh, innovation has always been there, of course. If, it, if we didn't innovate as a species, we would still be living like we did in the Stone Ages, right? So uh, clearly we don't live like that. Uh, and there have been some bursts, like during uh, 130 years ago, the great Victorian age of invention. 
when many of the foundational inventions that connected with business models to create the 20th century industries, grid electrification, refrigeration, uh, the iron nexus of gasoline and the internal combustion engine that powered the 20th century. Now, these were all things where the foundation stones were laid decades before. I believe we're living through a period like that right now, and we have been. And some of the technologies that are growing exponentially you're familiar with, we all know about Moore's Law. We know about how the software industry has changed our lives. We know about PCs and computing and networking, and, and a lot of us get a sense of what big data can do, although it's a lot bigger than you know. It's transforming industry after industry, including government and the social sector, in extremely powerful ways. But we're less aware, perhaps, not only of the coming revolution in genomics, but proteomics, metabolomics, and omics we haven't even named yet, right? And, and, and synthetic biology. And the point is that these technologies are not only just at that knee of the exponential curve of growth where they're about to take off even faster, but that they're converging in interesting ways that we hadn't expected. Who would have predicted five years ago that the climate change problem might be solved by synthetic biology? Uh, But Craig Venter, the man who invented life, as it were, a couple of years ago, very famously, uh, is betting the farm that he will come up with a clean energy solution using the tools he's invented in that field. And Maybe he will. I I wish him luck. That would be great if he did. Uh, But my point is entire industries are emerging that couldn't even be conceived a decade ago. So this this is a time of great optimism, but we're not connecting the dots between the innovation technologies, the inventions that are coming up, and a lot of the difficult problems we have, the wicked problems I've talked about. That's part of what I want to do with this book is issue a call to arms so that in our own lives and the way that we look at our... um, governments and the policies we put forward that reward or retard innovation, uh, and in, in a bit of the social compact, the agreement that we have as a society, we find ways of uh, encouraging experimentation, tolerating failure, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, and also how to reward innovators that work on socially important problems better than we do now. So that's the thesis of the book. I think we can do this, but it takes a vision of innovation that's a lot more ambitious, a lot more disruptive, and ultimately a lot more democratic than the way we've done it in the past. Now, I told you about three rules. Um, Let me tell you just a few words about each. Uh, Move nimbly. The world economy is moving pretty fast, and it's not just the guys in, you know, the software industry with two school kids who drop out of Stanford and and create the next Google. We kind of get software. There are no barriers to entry. Anybody in the world can compete against anybody. But what about asset-heavy industries, right, the old economy industries, healthcare? energy. These industries don't move that fast, right? Well, think again. Um, I went and saw the the head of innovation at BMW recently. And car industry has historically been a slow-moving industry. You know, five to seven years between the new edition of cars, upgrades don't come that often. They have, you know, foundries. They have used real steel to make stuff. It's not like it's software. Um, And he said, are you kidding me? You know, we're moving at the pace of China. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, look, China is our most important growth market. And there are 300 new cell phones that come out in China every year, most of them smartphones. And our new customers in Shanghai are so demanding, they expect every new BMW to sync perfectly with every one of those new phones with a heads-up Google Maps display in Chinese. My engineers are are being forced to move at the pace of China. And given that a BMW now is really a network 
of three dozen computers, interlinked computers. And most of the innovation that's going into automobiles is actually happening in the software and the integration of networks and systems. You can kind of see what he's talking about. This is increasing the metabolism of every single industry across the board, not just the software guys. So you need to move nimbly, move faster than you used to. Open wisely. The old model of, of doing research or thinking about innovation was sort of secretive corporate labs. You know, you can imagine Xerox Park or AT&T Bell Labs, maybe sort of the ivory towers at uh, Caltech, MIT, Oxford, that sort of thing, and where um, gray beards with white coats would think about Nobel Prizes and come up with great inventions that, you know, would be trumpeted to the world and delivered from on high to the rest of us. Well, guess what? I mean, that model might have suited its time and place in history, but we're living in a fundamentally different world today where... Um, much more anarchic ways of coming up with ideas and connecting mind and money to markets is fundamentally a bottom-up process. We're seeing open, networked, user-generated models of innovation are creating much more value than the traditional siloed, secretive approach to innovation that a lot of companies still think like in this day and age. They still fundamentally top-down. They still fundamentally think about patents rather than thinking about creating value for their customers. And my argument is companies that think like that are the dinosaurs. And, and if you want to survive, you need to be a dinosaur that learns how to dance. And there are companies that can do it, right? I mean, one example is IBM. It's a company that has embraced open innovation. They use, for example, the Linux um, software, which is uh, open source. It's something that's uh, freely available and people uh, contribute to it. The best minds in the world work on it. And, um, and the company tells me they save $400 million a year because they use Linux. And on top of it, of course, they provide value-added services to their corporate clients. They make it robust and secure, but they save a lot of money doing it that way. It's also a better software than they could have come up themselves, they tell me. And they have open innovation jams. Now, IBM is a, a Goliath, right, 100,000 and more employees um, but how do you make sure everyone's on the same page, or how do you learn from one part of the company to another? So these innovation jams they have from time to time, over the course of like two days, they'll give their employees a, a particular topic. How do we help with the clean energy in Africa, let's say? Uh, and they'll ask people to brainstorm collaboratively online, and they find... And they'll say the best ideas that come out will put $10 million behind it. They have a number of internal companies through this internal venture model that have come out, projects that have come out that they've actually funded. So they're very you know, open to this kind of open networked approach. But the reason why I say open but open wisely, if you actually look carefully at IBM, they're also the company that patents more than any other company in the last five years. They've filed more patents, and they're very litigious about their patents. I say, well, how can you claim to be an open innovation company if you're filing all these patents? And the secret is they're open when it suits them in areas where they don't have a, an edge where, or where it's easy to find uh, low barriers to entry and a lot of competitors coming in like software. In hardware, in their Watson supercomputer, I mean, uh, lots of us watch that Jeopardy show with the, the computer beat the guys, right, the smart guys. Well, that, they're not giving that away for free, I can promise you. It's not open innovation. It's proprietary, right? And so the secret is really in the challenge for all of you in your organizations, figuring out how to be open, when to be open, how to work collaboratively with partners, how to soften your attitudes, especially from the legal department, on IP. Because if you try to do anything with open innovation, the lawyers are going to say, oh, you're going to corrupt the IP. Oh, don't do that. Well, guess what? If you don't, your competitors are going to do it. If your competitors are talking with your suppliers and your customers, 
they're going to come up with better ideas than you are, and they're going to beat you in your own business because the smartest people in your business don't work for you any longer. They're distributed around the world, and you need to be connecting with them in, in more creative ways. And that sometimes takes risk. You have to take that risk. But that's not to say that everything that's open is great. There's a whole movement saying that you know the wisdom of crowds and, and people crowdsource ideas. And hey, you look, you know, I love Amazon. I read the reviews, right? And it's, it's very helpful. Reddit, some of you more tech-savvy guys will be on, on Reddit and some of these other sites. Um, but guess what? There's also not just wisdom of crowds, but the stupidity of crowds, right? And, and the bland mediocrity of crowds, right? Like some genuinely good ideas can be averaged out to some mediocre. The point is you can't just sack your R&D department or the, the bright people in your company and outsource everything and say, let's just you know, have a website. Uh, you need to actually be even more rigorous in having smart people on the inside. Think of it as being a beacon. Be bright enough on the inside that it's worth outsiders of talent wanting to work with you. Um, and then, if you're good enough, you need to also have that skeptical edge to say, let's be discerning about what we bring in from the outside. This is more work than the old-fashioned siloed approach. But if you don't do it, your competitors are going to do it. And you're going to be, you know, pretty soon enough, they'll be performing better than you are. That's my argument to you. This is not easy stuff, but this is the way the world is changing. Um, and the value of this, one small example. We all know what Netflix is, right? The company that sends you DVDs, or now increasingly you can download their videos. A couple of years ago, they said, look, you know, they're a smart company. They're pretty innovative. But they said, um, our secret sauce is our algorithm that helps us predict, you know, what, what the customers want, what movies you want. They said, we got a lot of smart computer scientists, but maybe we could do better. So they put out a million-dollar prize. And some of you I know are nodding your heads. You've heard about this. But the tale actually has a nice twist. They said, we'll give a million dollars to anybody that can improve our algorithm by 10%. That would be really good for their business, right? It was worth it to spend a million dollars. They said, anybody in the world. They expected there'd be a few dozen nerds here and there that would apply, right? Now, it's kind of a technical problem. Tens of thousands of people from around the world got really jazzed up from all walks of life, young and old, computer scientists, physicists, people who had no experience in anything to do with computers. Were, and they were working openly and collaboratively on the web, and they were chasing each other, working with each other. Ultimately, the team that won, not only did they beat the threshold of 10%, but when they came to the, the U.S. to pick up the prize, the members of the team had never been in one room at the same time. They had met on the Internet and spontaneously converged in an open, networked way to, cre to create the best solution. Let that be an inspiration to you on how in your own organization you can think about how you can disrupt yourself in a positive way by connecting with outsiders who you may not think of as experts and who you may not even know to be knowledgeable in your field because that's where the best ideas are increasingly coming from. When I talk about <clears throat> fail gracefully, I think people get it. You know, you, know, you kind of um, need to try things, be experimental, especially if, as I've said, the world economy is moving a lot faster. You have to be experimental. My point with this is it's hard to do, and you need to really think about changing the culture of your organizations, even in your own personal lives, how you think about your career and your attitudes towards education of your children, for example. Um, it's now fashionable to say, look, we have to fail fast as an organization. What does that mean? You know, try a lot of things. Try more uh, items, uh, you know, whether it's projects or ventures, and if it doesn't work, be ready to kill it, learn the right lesson, and move on quickly. Right? That's what a lot of management gurus now say. Now say you have to fail fast. And again, that sounds pretty good. 
And um, it's actually being taken up by some of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, General Electric, we all know GE, 100-year-old company. It's one of the dinosaurs that does know how to dance. I had the chance to sit down with uh, Jeff Immelt for this book. And among the things he told me is, I tell all my managers, guys, we've got to fail fast. You know, for the, if you're going to be here for the next 100 years, take more swings at the plate. I'll forgive you if you strike out more often. It's okay, because we really need to hit those home runs as a company. And once in a while, we'll get a grand slam. And so I thought, well, this is very inspiring. He's the boss of a major company telling his senior managers, it's okay to fail. Do it the right way. Fail fast. But again, being a journalist that we're innately skeptical, I said, let me go check this out. And so I flew up to the R&D headquarters that they have near Schenectady, and I asked around, and I asked the head of research, fast failure, what do you think? He said, oh, I hate it. It's terrible. I said, what do you mean it's terrible? As the boss wants it. All the gurus say this is the way to go. This is fast failure. He said, no, look, I, when I see uneconomic projects, I kill them. And I find out six months later, these guys are still working on it. At night, uh, at home, on the weekends, off the budget, like a dog with a bone, he told me. These guys won't give up on their projects. And I thought to myself, this tells you something about human nature. If even the chairman of the company at GE tells you to fail fast and people won't do it, here's why. How many of you in this room put all your failures at the top of your resume? Come on, hands up. <laughs> Look, it's, it's not human nature, right? We're type A personalities. We want to succeed. But if you can kind of get why at the level of an organization or even a country or culture, if you want to move faster, you need to try more things. We need to do this. And in industries like healthcare, for example, which are caught in this very, um, uh, in almost in a, a loop where incentives are perverse, where the systems doesn't, system doesn't learn. We need to experiment more and learn from those experiments, scale up pilots that work. We need to create what Andy Grove, the former chairman of Intel, calls faster knowledge turns. Learn faster. Same in our educational system. It needs to be a learning system. That means we have to fail more often. We have to change the culture that embraces and allows fast failure. How do you do it? You need to figure it out in your organization, but culture is the key. The company like, that I like is um, W.L. Gore, the people that make Gore-Tex fabrics. When they kill a project, they throw a party. <laughs> I think that kind of gets a little bit towards uh, a change in culture that I'm talking about. <clears throat> so very briefly, the myths. I think I've already explained to you why losing can be winning. Uh, please lose more often. I want to see all of you, you know, as a group of losers next time I see you. Um, greed and why it can be glorious. I think I've given a foreshadowing of this, but in a sense, if we're going to solve these difficult problems that I'm talking about, in an age where capitalism gets a bad name, and rightly so, given the brand of Wall Street capitalism that's been practiced, I'm here to say we need more capitalism, not less, if we're going to solve these big problems, but a different kind of capitalism. You know, one where we go from greed is good to harnessing greed for good, that is, rewarding the entrepreneurs, the bottom-up innovators that have always come up with the best ideas, the best solutions. You know, we're never going to solve the clean energy problem, to take an example that may be close to a lot of your Texan hearts, with a moonshot, right? Uh, there's a lot of people that want to see an Apollo project to, to solve climate change and, and come up with clean energy. And, you know, I, I actually worked for NASA in my previous incarnation on this International Space Station project, so I, I have a great deal of respect for NASA um, and I know a lot about energy, having spent 10 years in that area. But my view is sending a man to the moon once, cost be damned, to beat the Soviets, which is really why we wrote that blank check, let's be honest, is a very different kind of problem than making sure that 7 billion people on Earth 
have access to clean energy in a way that's sustainable, affordable, environmentally sound, and convenient. The latter problem is not suited to top-down solutions, no matter how enlightened the, the bureaucrat. It's one that fundamentally has to be bottom-up. It's going to have to involve lots of success and lots of failures, for example, in winning distribution. People use energy differently in different parts of the world, and there are different needs, different uh, things may be convenient or not. So that's why I say fundamentally this is not going to be solved by a moonshot. We need to have that potential from the bottom. That's why I say harnessing, whether it be private sector entrepreneurs or that rich array of social entrepreneurs, people working with um, uh, motives that are philanthropic, but that are learning how to adapt business models and sustainability to what they do. And I profile a number of people like this in my book. I think this is really where the solutions will come from for the difficult social problems. But we desperately need to give more rewards to people that work on these socially difficult problems. And that's what I talk about greed. And here, public policy can help. Government does have a role in, for example, with externalities in areas like energy or healthcare, where we don't have incentives right. You know, dirty energy gets a free ride, in my opinion. Lots of economics literature will support this. So public policy can play a role not by giving money to specific solar energy companies. That's the wrong way to do it, right? Don't pick technology winners, but by setting a level playing field and providing incentives for any of those who work on the solutions that are socially attractive. Uh, just to give a small example, um, to be concrete, in my home state of Connecticut, um, the government has recognized that, you know what, until we have a broader national system that has proper externalities pricing, um, like carbon taxes or trading systems or something, we acknowledge that clean energy might need some subsidies in the meanwhile. That's the way they made the decision. But they, we're not going to pick solar or we're not going to pick geothermal. So they have something called a reverse auction. So they say whoever can bid in with the smallest subsidy required will get the taxpayer money. And this is a much better system than, for example, what California or Germany did, and that is say solar, that's the sexy one, we're going to give all our money to solar bonds or to enormously lavish solar subsidies in Germany, when in fact Germany has the lowest solar potential of any country on earth. I mean, it is the biggest boondoggle you've ever encountered, and it's a complete waste of money, right? So that's what I say. There's a role for government, but a carefully circumscribed one. So let's harness greed for good. And the last point, disruptive dads will beat tiger moms. You know, this really gets to uh, a fallacy. I think a lot of people look at the rise of China and say, you know, China up, America down. And I say, well, this is a zero-sum mentality, right? Um, China's rise does not have to mean America has to decline. Global innovation historically, we, we know, um, can be a rising tide that lifts all boats. China's rise can be that tide. But we have to patch the holes in our vessel first. Right? You're not going to rise if, if you've got problems in the things make, that make an innovation superpower. So we have work to do with our educational system, and I've alluded to some of the problems there, with investment in R&D, for example. I was at Capitol Hill, actually, on Friday on behalf of the leading scientific societies in America, arguing that even in a time of economic distress and financial um, straits, we need to invest in R&D, and we need to do more to make sure it's more effective. Because if you don't invest in a downturn, you will not come out stronger with the capacity to innovate and grow in the future. So I'm a believer in doing the right things that enable the future growth that comes through innovation, like a strong federal role in supporting R&D. But uh, I don't think it's right to say that China's rise is going to bury us, and especially to attribute cultural values. 
how many of us have heard that you know the superior Asian values on education are going to bury America? And, and the, the argument goes something like this, right? That uh, you, you're only because of um, you know that discipline beats play, that um, deference to authority beats dissent, that uh, memorization uh, beats creativity. I say rubbish. This is exactly the wrong way to think about the problem. I think if you want to be an innovation superpower, of course you have to have reading, writing, and arithmetic. You better make sure that you know my daughter is going to know all those things very well, just as all of our children should. But that's not a secret formula for success in the ideas economy. That's just the ticket for entry to the 21st century. If you want to flourish and you want to be at the cutting edge of innovation as America has been for the last 100 years, then you actually need to do the harder things. And in that kind of world, I think rote memorization, standardization, harmonization will always lose to creative disruption and innovation. Thank you very much. Of course. To start the questions, one of the uh, ideas that you did not talk about in drawing on your experience as a medical correspondent, talk about frugal innovation and how, when we look at the cost of uh, uh, magnetic imaging machines, you know, and they're much cheaper in India, how are you going to get someone like Imelt, Jeff Imelt, to say, well, now we can sell these much cheaper to UT Southwestern? Sure. Ah. Thank you so much. That's, that's, it's a great question, and one of the things that I uh, have done a lot of reporting on at The Economist, but, and also you'll find in the book, is um, one of the dynamic aspects of innovation is that um, countries like China, India, Brazil, um, you know, the BRICS countries you know about, the civets are right behind them. There's other acronyms right behind them as well coming. Um, you're finding frugal engineering, and what, you know, what's meant by this, of course, is historically uh, that uh, – Companies in these uh, markets are coming up with cheap and cheerful solutions, right? Uh, uh, whereas uh, innovation has tended, especially in medical technology, to be gold-plated. How many of us know about you know the latest scanner that somebody gets? Uh, one of the big Western companies. It costs another hundred thousand dollars, but it's just a little bit better, right? It's not just open MRI. Now you have walk-through MRI. You have to swim through MRI. Will be next. <laughs> You know, what's the extra value created for society, right? And, and so this is, we have, I ask very tough questions to the companies in this space, and oftentimes the answers are not very satisfying. And when you, what you find in a market like India and China, where you have a middle class that's wealthy enough to afford uh, proper technology and medical care, but you also have enough dynamism and entrepreneurial um, gusto from the bottom up, be that, say, Apollo Hospitals in India or a company like Mindray in China, which is a New York Stock Exchange-listed medical devices company, they're coming up with breakthroughs, leapfrogs in technology that are not just cheap and cheerful, but they're actually cheaper and much better. And they're connecting, in the case of Mindray, for example, ultrasound. All the big boys are working on color, moving sort of next generation, making bigger, more expensive machines. They saw that, wait a minute, um, why don't we stick with black and white, but why don't we make it digital? Why do we make it smaller and more portable? And they suddenly came up with a breakthrough product that was not only more affordable, it was better because it was digital and connected, and they managed to get to number one in, in the world in that market niche. And so I say that our medical problems in the U.S., where 20, almost 20% of GDP goes to healthcare, and not because of pills. It's easy to beat up on big pharma, but we only spend 10% of our healthcare costs on pills. Much more of it is spent on needless scans and medical technology. You know, the medical uh, future may be saved in America by disruptive innovators. The only question is whether the innovators will use forks or chopsticks. Questions from, questions from the audience, and we do. 
and if you'd wait for the microphone, please. Thanks, Ravi. Excellent uh, presentation. Really liked it. My name is Adil Adi, and uh, you know, in the beginning of your talks, you mentioned about uh, technology versus value creation. So, how can you explain the phenomena or your views? Uh, yes, Facebook has some technology. I give them credit. But what about that $100 billion of uh, enterprise value? Yeah. Where, is, where is value in Facebook? Well, I think you answered your own question in a way because um, it, Facebook really doesn't have any real new technology. Not really, right? Um, but the reason it is valuable, which is the point you're making, rightly so, uh, is that uh, how it's changed the lives of users. Right? People connect in ways that they never did, and as they approach, you know, who knows how many billion people will ultimately use it. Um, I think the value, there are network effects. Right? I mean, there are other systems. Google is trying with Google+, Plus, not very effectively. Uh, so it's, it's not a, a business model that's defensible, really, uh, and yet has enormous value. I think that the, uh, people are voting with their feet, I would say. The users deem that it has value by using it. And um, shareholders are deeming that it has value in the marketplace. So in a sense, you know, you put your finger on the right thing, and you answered your question better than I could. Okay. One, one more question, if I may, just so that I can give up uh, the mic. Uh, you are a correspondent in China, and you, you reside there? or you reside, Yes, I do. You reside yes. there. So from an investment standpoint, you know, I am looking at some investments in China, but I'm extremely leery. You know about how the how the work how how the folks are in that part of the region. I'm very very leery, and I've seen a lot of folks uh, get attractive investments to come here back. The reverse, you know, there's an EB3 program. You know, I've been associated with that EB3 program EB5. where EB5, the program which uh, Let's get a question. allows which allows. So, what are your views on that? The question is how you see feasible for money to come into America? Um, I think um, one, uh, continue to be leery. It's a very tough place to do business, and you'll, it's quite easy to fall in, uh, into situations where you'll be cheated out of your money. So uh, if you don't know who's the, doing the cheating in a situation, you're probably the one getting cheated, right? Like in poker, right? If you don't know who the chump is, you're the chump. So I, I applaud you for being careful and doing your due diligence, uh, especially in China. But in, in, to your point about, you know, what about them coming here? Well, this is the next wave of China's economic growth. The formal policy, according to the government, and so much of the economy is state-directed, state-owned enterprises, that what the government says actually matters, unlike perhaps in Washington. None of you businessmen in this room may, not, may necessarily do what Washington tells you to do. But in China, a lot of the economy does. It's called the go-out strategy. And so the next wave of growth the company sees is by its own state-run enterprises going overseas. Now, the dynamic private sector capitalists, like the Mindray I mentioned and many others, are already overseas. But now you're going to see the big Chinese companies come overseas. And you'll, they're already in Europe in a very big way. They're in Latin America and Africa in a big way. The challenge will be when they come to America, are we going to treat them like we treated them during the Unical deal, which in my view was a shameful exercise of uh, xenophobia, uh, where we said basically uh, a market-based approach to a private sector company is not welcome. Uh, there was no national security threat, in my judgment, and I wrote an editorial in The Economist at the time saying so in a Chinese company purchasing Unical. But uh, So we need to take a good hard look at when we say we believe in open markets, free markets, is that really how we're going to treat China? Because if we don't, and I know there are certain areas in defense where we're rightly concerned and skeptical, but that clearly did not apply to Unical. 
uh, if we're going to treat them in that way and push them away from market-based approaches, then they will use other means, uh, which are, might be more underhanded or using government diplomacy in the Sudan, dealing with savory regimes. Uh, and in part, they tell me, we don't have a welcome mat in America. We don't, know that, we don't know that we're welcome. So I hope they're welcome because I'd like to see them engage as a normal free trading partner rather than one that sees its only opportunities are by doing sort of dirty deals on the side with dictators. We have another question. Last question, Lynn Minna. How would you change our patent laws to encourage um, innovation as you define it? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a uh, sixty-four. That one minute. Exactly. <laughs> sixty-four thousand dollar question, right? Um, yeah, I do talk about patent laws in the book, and um, I think that um, it's a difficult challenge. The first principle I have is that. Um, uh, innovators deserve rewards. I th- I've said that a few times. That's the greed in my title, right? So I believe it, whether it's, it doesn't have to be patents the way we have them. There's nothing, there's no tablet that, that came from on high saying you must give patents for this long. It's an arbitrary decision. It's a monopoly rent to a company for investing in a, a drug, a bio, biological drug for 10 years and billions of dollars will give you market exclusivity, right? Well, we can certainly change that formula. Um, I think the answer given the time I have would be to find a more creative solution than the rigid formula we have today. One, for example, that acknowledges that we may have to think about other forms of rewards to innovators that are not just patents. There can be a bundle of trade secrets and other means of rewarding companies. Companies themselves have to decide that we may take the rewards in other forms, uh, not just in terms of patents, because if you insist on a rigid, pure, quote-unquote, IP model, you're probably going to be left behind by what's happening in the reality of the marketplace, and you're probably not going to be that competitive in places like China, where enforcement is going to be a real challenge. And so are you just going to be stay out of China because you demand the purest form of patent? So we may find variation in how IP works in different parts of the world, and we, we may even need to have differentiated means of doing IP between, for example, pharma and biotech in one side, which have a certain set of investment models, and over here where, say, software exists. And we may need to think about multiplicity of ways of thinking about this, that's going to challenge purists. They, they hate it when I say stuff like this. But it's not just me. I'm great economists like Paul Romer uh, at NYU, who's one of the founders of innovation theory and new growth theory. He's perhaps the most provocative thinker on patents today on this topic, makes this point as well in the book. So I think we need to be more creative about things. And, and we need to get off our high horse on demanding exactly the way it's been before is the only way it can be in the future. BJ, thank you very much. Thanks so much. BJ. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.